We are continuing this morning in our series on the mission of our church. Um, And we will start today with the second part of that mission, as you saw, that is one of joyful obedience. Tom asked me to cover the theological side of things. This is a two-part series. So he asked me to, to cover the theological side of what it means to be joyfully obedient, and he would do the practical application. So in technical uh, preaching parlance, we call application stepping on toes, <laughs> like that. But because I'm just doing theology, I don't have to step on any toes. We get to tiptoe through the tulips together. Those of you who are over 40 recognize Tiny Tim, do you not? Yeah. Those of you who are not need to get to know him. He's quite a character. Well, let's look today at what joyful obedience means. I'll be reading from the comments that Jesus gave to his disciples in what we call the Upper Room Discourse. And that is the last gathering that Jesus had with his disciples. He knew what was coming. This was the night before he was to die. He knew all of that. And so these words that he gives us from John 14 through 17 are the last things he wanted to deposit into the hearts and minds of the disciples and us. So um, let's look at what he said. If you love me, you will obey what I command and will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever the spirit of truth. Our sermon in a sentence is the mission statement that we have to know Jesus Christ, to serve him in joyful obedience, and to make him known by growing disciples, planting churches, and renewing communities. So our focus out of all that will be this, obedience motivated by love leads to joy. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you have given us so much. You have granted us the grace to know you. You have promised to walk with us. You have given us a mission that we can lay hold of and that you give us privilege to walk with you in. And so I pray today, today you might help us grasp that. Today you might enable us to love that, enjoy it, and know it. And so as we talk together today, I ask that you would set me aside so that I'm not a hindrance to what you might say to anyone here. Forgive my sins and cleanse me and cleanse all of us so that we can hear your word to us this day. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first three points of my sermon are right in these two verses that we have right here. They are love, obedience, help, and joy. So let's begin to look at that. First, let's start with love. Isn't that a good place to start? Love? Who's who's, who's against love? So we're going to start right there. And Jesus said, if you love me. So what is there to love about Jesus? There are lots of things, lots and lots of things. But I want to just talk about one thing. 
as Ann mentioned about being vulnerable, when somebody shares their story with you, you know that you enter into a sacred place, do you not? Because they are vulnerable, because they shared something that's really important to them. And as they share that, at least when I have that experience, my heart begins to melt because I see them in a bigger part of who they are. I get to know a little bit of their story. And as that happens, when they are vulnerable with me, I draw closer to them. I begin to build a bond with them, a brother, sister, brother, brother, whatever it is, because that has happened. You see, so this is exactly what Jesus did when he came to this earth. He was vulnerable. First, how did he start? As a baby. How much more vulnerable do you get than a baby? A baby can't do anything for him or herself. They can't feed themselves, they can't clean themselves, they can't move around, they can't, do, they can't protect themselves, they cannot do anything. But Jesus made himself vulnerable, even in that form. But Jesus also exposed himself to hunger, pain, temptation, and torture, and to a death that he did not deserve, all because he wanted to get close to us. Because Jesus himself is vulnerable, God makes himself accessible to us in that vulnerability. They said that, that Jesus came in flesh, in truth, and lived among us. So that's the thing we have. He lived among us so we could touch him, know him, grow close to him. That is it. The God who created the universe is accessible and available to us. What's not to love about that? So, knowing that, I'm going to ask you the same question that Peter asked, that Jesus, rather, asked Peter after the resurrection and after Peter's betrayal. The disciples had gone up to Galilee. They were fishing, had been fishing all night long and caught nothing. And as they were pulling their nets in and, and making ready to get into shore, there was a man that was standing on the shoreline, and he yelled out, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And they, gosh, how is this going to happen this time of day? So they did it anyway. And as they threw those nets into the water, they were filled up with fish, so much so that it almost swamped the boat. And at that moment, John thought, that's Jesus. As soon as Peter did that, he jumped into the water, swam over to Jesus, and left the rest of the disciples to pull all that stuff in. <laughs> so they had a meal, and then after the meal, Jesus pulled Peter aside and asked him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Jesus said, tend my sheep. And then the third time, it says in verse 17, was it up there? It's not up there. All right, so he said this. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So, when Jesus asked this of Peter, did he ask him for perfect obedience? No. Did Jesus 
hold Peter's betrayal against him? No, he did not. Did Jesus tell Peter that he no longer wanted him to serve him? No, he did not. He said, tend my sheep. He restored him to ministry. And as one who has been out of ministry for five years, getting restored is like getting your life back. That's what was happening to Peter in that moment. <laughs> so now, knowing how Jesus responded to Peter after his betrayal, let me ask this question of you. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? We're getting real personal here. I'm getting close to stepping on toes, but not quite. Um, what stirs within you when you ask, when I ask you, do you love Jesus? Is it the yes, but I could, I could love him better? Yes, but I don't love him all the time. Is there a yearning? Is there a longing that is coming up within your heart when you say, when I say to you, do you love Jesus? Is that going on? Hmm. Do you want to do right by God? Do you want to please him? If that is so, then that may be an indication that you, in fact, love Jesus. Now, some of you may say, I don't, love, I don't know this Jesus, so how can I love him? Well, let me encourage you to keep your minds open. It may be that I will address some of the issues that have kept you away from God, like what you perceive as a moral code that is impossible to keep. So knowing now God's call for us to love him, let's look at the next thing he said to us in obedience. Jesus said, again, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Now, I had trouble with obedience ever before I, I knew the Bible and was looking at these kind of verses. They called me obstreperous. Now, that's a great word. <laughs> there we are. Uh, obstreperous means resisting control or restraint in a difficult manner, unruly. Now, these, these pictures don't really capture the level of obstreperousness that I exhibit. But let me tell you, anything that my parents wanted to do, I didn't want to do. Especially cleaning and other things. But even stuff like going sailing. Let's go sailing. No, I don't want to. Why? I just don't want to. I won't. And so my poor mother had to, to sit with me on the edge of the lake while everybody else went, went sailing. That's the kind of resistance I had. So, you know, as we look at these pictures... We looked long and hard for the pictures that showed me with shoulder-length hair and a scruffly beard, which my parents absolutely hated and that therefore I absolutely loved. Because, you know, parents don't keep those kind of things, <laughs> those kind of pictures. So we couldn't find any. Uh, they're somewhere, but I, we couldn't find them. They've been burned. In a, yeah, so, what, but, um, so you know what it took for them to get me to cut my hair? My father, who is a uh, neurosurgeon, was the national consultant to neurosurgery for the United States Air Force. And every once in a while, he would do a world tour to check out hospitals of Air Force uh, companies around the world. So he invited me to come along. So my question was, do I cut my hair or do I go around the world? Do I cut my hair? Do I go? Okay, already, I'll cut my hair. So... <laughs> So that was what was going on. So <clears throat> that's really kind of how I developed my scintillating personality, as you know it now, right? <laughs> but you know, when I, when I look at obedience, I knew forced obedience. I knew resentful obedience. 
I knew resigned obedience, but the idea of happy obedience was a foreign concept to me. So, when you read this verse as it's led, as it's in the King James Version, it says, if you love me, keep my commands. But you see in the ESV and the New International, the 84 version, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I am confident that the second reading is the correct reading. Um, But what does this do? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus predicts and describes what those who love him will be like. They will love the Lord first and foremost. They will honor their parents. They will respect others' property and lives. They will honor the sanctity of marriage. They will speak the truth. They will delight in others' good fortune. You see, the Ten Commandments are God's picture of what true human flourishing is. But you know what Jesus did? One of the most dramatic things that he did was to forever change our relationship with the law. Forever. He fulfilled the law, every last bit of it. He lived a perfect life. Then he agreed to pay the penalty for everyone who could not fulfill the law completely, all of us. He took the penalty of death for us. That means we do not have to fulfill the law to be in relationship with God. We don't have to be perfect to receive his love. God loved us enough to make sure that nothing could separate us from him. All we need to do is receive that amazing provision for us. Paul talks about this further in his letter to the Galatians. If any of you know this church in Galatia, they were a very contentious church. There was a group of them that said, in order to follow God, you have to follow all the Jewish customs and laws. There was another group that said, no, we are free from the law and under grace. And so Paul, in the middle of that, asked them this question in Galatians 3, 2 and 3. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to obtain your goal by human effort? (laughs) That's the crux of it. After my divorce, uh, I looked at my body. I was about 50 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I thought, I've got to really slim down so that I can have any possibility of attracting some lady. So I worked really, really hard. (laughs) And then I met Carol. And we fell in love. And we got married. And I had lost about 25 pounds at that point. And I wanted to do more. But she loved me just as I was. And she encouraged me to to do what I wanted to do, but it wasn't a demand for her love. You see... Before we got together, I was working for love and acceptance. After, I was working from love and acceptance. And that is the game changer that Jesus created for us by dying for us on the cross and giving us his spirit so that we don't have to prove ourselves to God. He's already done all of that. 
we can walk in freedom in his life. So, we come to the next point, and that is help. You see, he knew that we need a lot of help to get this done, because <laughs> we're going to mess it up without that. And so, this is what Jesus said, again, in these same verses that we've been reading. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Hmm. (laughs) Jesus gave us himself. The fullness of who he is. He shows his, his followers that he will enable us to do exactly what he's asked us to do. He's given us a helper. That's another word for counselor the Holy Spirit. If this were a directive, keep my commandments, then this, would how, this is how it would read. If you love me, keep my commands, and then I will give you the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, we would have to earn his relationship with us. That is not at all what Jesus has done. Hmm. That makes that a reward for good behavior. Something we must earn. That would make Jesus' saving death on the cross null and void. Instead, it reads this. If you love me, I promise that you will be able to obey my commands. I know that you will need help to do that. I will ask the Father to send you the spirit of truth. Do you see what's happening here? All the Trinity is involved in our life. And our following God. Jesus asked the Father to send the Holy Spirit. There they all are, active in us. And then, if you look at verse 23, it says this. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Think about that. God will come and make his home in us. Hmm. What stirs in you when you hear that? God will settle into your heart. He will make his home there. As we invite him in, he makes himself comfortable in us. And just as he's making himself comfortable, we begin to also become comfortable. What a rapturous thought. What an amazing gift to have God's presence alive within us. And then in verse 26, he says this. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So that's the help we have. He's going to teach us all about God. He's going to remind us of what God has said to us in the Scriptures. But I don't know about you, but I get prompting sometimes. Do you? In the middle of a moment, a verse comes to mind, or an idea pops into my head, and it's amazing. It says, what? it's just to know that kind of intimacy. But you know, there are also other commands that Jesus gives us, besides the Ten Commandments. Here's one of them. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. 
and I will give you rest. He's saying, come on. He recognizes that we're broken, that we get worn down, and in those places that we can stumble and fall. So he says, come on, come to me. He recognizes that that's true. And then he says this in in Matthew 6, 9 to 12. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts or sins. You see, that was his command that we should pray to do what? Confess our sins and ask forgiveness. So our brokenness is not a surprise to him, and that's why he sends the Holy Spirit. You know, he is not surprised by our sin, especially when it comes to addictions like money, power, sex, our reputation. Jack Miller, who was the founder of the Sonship Movement, often referred to himself as an approval sock. So there's your reputation. That's what he was doing. It's all, all of us deal with that. So knowing that God gave us a pathway to renewal from our brokenness, it is repentance, a broken heart, God will not despise. Jesus also said this. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 29. That is especially true in moments when we have fallen. Is Jesus' death sufficient for me? Is it enough to cover my sins? Will he welcome me back as he did Peter without judgment or ridicule? That's exactly what he's promised. It's ours when we lean into God and believe his promise for forgiveness. The Apostle John also said in his letter to the, uh, his first letter, he said this, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's what we have true for us every day, every hour. Let me ask some of you who have walked with the Lord for a while. Is your life at all like it was before you first came to Jesus? Is there a difference? As you can see, it hasn't been perfect, but has your character changed? Well, that's been true of me. (laughs) That obstreperous, stubborn, hard-hearted, angry, sullen young man is no longer there. Do I get angry sometimes? Yes. Do I get sullen sometimes? Sure. But that's not the character of who I am. God has been transforming me. Because, as Adele Calhoun says, if you keep company with Jesus, transformation happens. So when we keep company with Jesus, he transforms us from the inside out, sometimes in ways we just don't even recognize until we look back from years past. What results from unhindered vulnerability before God is joy. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Jesus tells us the motivation that he has given us for his call to obedience. First, he wants us to experience the same kind of intimacy that he enjoys with his Father. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. He, he 
when we have the same experience, even our obedience means that we need to confess our sins to him. He's waiting with open arms for us. He really wants us to experience his joy. Did you know that Jesus' motivation for all of this teaching was so that we could have joy? He said, I want you to have my joy in you so that your joy may be complete. That's his motivation. He wants us to experience that kind of joy in what we do and how we live. A number of years ago, Carol and I went to Uganda on a mission trip. And the mission was to teach pastors in Uganda evangelism. And so on the first uh, place where we stopped, I met a man by the name of George. He was from Kampala, and he came with the team up there to lead this uh, mission. And he began to tell me his story. I had no idea these things went on. Witchcraft is active and alive in Uganda. His parents sent him with some friends they knew to get him to a school in Kampala. But that's not what happened. They took this 12-year-old boy and they tortured him. They put his feet in the fire. They, they near starved him. And then all because they wanted to get rich. And that's what the witch doctor said they should do. The final thing was for them to chop his head off. And he stood in the waters of Lake Victoria waiting. And they argued about who was going to do that. And nobody could decide. So the mom of that family grabbed him, threw him in the car, and took him out in the bush. Where for two weeks he lived on grass and sucked the, the moisture from the mud that was around him. Two weeks later, she came back and picked him up. He was not dead yet. And took him to the hospital. He stayed in the hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. He didn't know how to get in hold of his parents. And this lady then decided she was going to send a letter to his family and let them know where he was. But somehow she dropped the letter. And his mom came looking for him in Kampala. If you've ever been in Kampala, it's a crazy place. Just things moving all the time. And she looked down as she was walking down one road and saw an envelope. She picked it up, and inside, inside was the hospital in room number where her son was staying. So she got together with him. And when he got out, he never wanted to see the inside of a hospital ever again. I can't blame him. But one day, a friend of his was sick, and he thought he would come and visit him. And so as he did, as he visited with him and prayed for him, he found himself filled with joy. And then he began looking around at the other patients that were all around him, and he began to talk to them. Now it's his full-time mission to go into hospitals and love on people there and pray for them and share the gospel with them. That gave him great joy. You see the transformation of what God has done? He walks with us so that we, what we do, can be filled with joy. For me, the whole idea of joy is in this ring, which I wear on my pinky. That was my grandfather's ring, which he passed on to my father and my father to me. I had no idea what it meant until I met with some Chinese friends and they translated it for me. You read from, uh, well, the first symbol means high, which means sea. 
Then it's le yi. Le means joyful. Li means uh, yi means willing. So my Chinese friends said that my, that the people thought by giving him this honor, honorific name that they honored my grandfather who came across the sea in 1913 to China to take care of the people there. He was a medical missionary. So he was, he was joyfully willing to do what God had called him to do. And when we get to that point, there is great obedience and joy. There is something to look forward to. What is it in your life that gives you joy and obedience? Let us pray together. Our God and Father, thank you so much for the grace that you have given us, for the kindness that you have filled us with, for the joy to be in your presence and to do your work which you empower us to do. Oh God, open our hearts, open our minds, open our lives, and grant us the joy that you so easily and happily offer us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.